Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Starting Over podcast. Can you believe it is almost the end of 2023? I literally cannot get my head around this right now, how fast this year has gone. So I hope that you are all feeling Christmassy. I'm not sure which part of the world you are in and whether it is like where it is with me right now, which is covered in a lot of snow and it's quite charming, I've got to say. But we have a lovely episode for you today, which is going to wrap up our year on the show. And the guest is probably one of the biggest that we have ever had. It was definitely a pinch me moment, a full circle after two years of, of this show. And her story is really, really incredible. Now, our guest, Dr. Jill Taylor. She is a Harvard-trained neuroanatomist and she was catapulted, and I mean catapulted, into the public sphere with what has been one of the most viral TED Talks of all time, watched over 27 million times. Times chose her as one of the most 100 influential people in the world. And the topic of what she shares and what we talk about today is her stroke of insight. So Jill had a stroke, in fact, a hemorrhage in the left side of her brain, which caused her to lose her ability to walk, talk, read, write, or even recall her own name. But she did make a full recovery and she learned a lot in the process. Her story is incredible and she shares a lot of her insights on the podcast with us today. What do we need to know about the brain in order to live a more joyful life? How can we let go of the past and of our projections or worries about the future and be more deeply present in the now? This was one of her key takeaways and she goes into depth on that. She also gives us insights into how we can start feeling more inner peace, what we need to know about the brain in order to do that. She also shares a 90 second rule, which is super easy. It's a quick and simple hack. And if you consistently implement this, it will change your life because you will be able to feel in much greater control of your emotions and what's happening internally, despite what is happening externally. And on that external note, we finish up at the end of the conversation with a discussion around how to implement what she speaks about in the context of the holiday period and being with our families or friends and how to deal with possible conflict or possible inner triggers. So I really, really hope that you enjoy this episode. If you do, please, please leave a rating, review, or come send me over a message on shannonjenkins.co on Instagram or hello at startingoverwithshannon.com. I always love, love hearing from you. But with no further ado, here is my conversation with Jill. Jill, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Starting Over podcast. It has been some time that I've wanted to get you on. So when you agreed, I was like, oh, yes, this is going to be good. <laughs> thank you, Shannon. Yeah, no, I think I'm a great match for before and after. Yes. The before and after story. Yes. And your story is just brilliant. And your TED Talk, which has been one of the most watched TED Talks, I think, of all time now, your stroke of insight left me asking a lot of questions about the nature of our world, the nature of our minds, um, how we operate. And I really want to go into this story of yours. So Perfect. yeah, talk me through before your stroke, 
So let's go back to what you were doing professionally, where you were living, what your life was like. Perfect. So I grew up in Indiana. Um, I had uh, two brothers, but one is only 18 months older than I. And as children, everywhere we went, we went together. And it was really clear to me as a, as a very young child that my brother and I perceived our experiences completely differently because something would happen like mom, we'd be out playing in the yard and a ball would go out into the street. Mom could come, would come out screaming. And he interpreted that behavior as angry. And I interpreted that behavior as scared. So I noticed that we were very different and I just became really fascinated with, with what am I? What am I as a living being and how is it two of us who, who are look alike and sound alike as siblings are so different in how we're processing information. So eventually my brother would grow up to be diagnosed with the brain disorder, schizophrenia, and I would grow up to be a, a Harvard trained neuroanatomist, study the anatomy of the brain, because I wanted to understand at a biological level, what are the differences in how I can connect my dreams to my reality and I can make my dreams come true. But my brother's reality could not land in a social norm. And so he would have delusions and hallucinations. So to me, the brain has always been this fascinating thing. So I was teaching and performing research at Harvard Medical School. Uh, I was 37 years old. And then I woke up one day and I was experiencing a major hemorrhage in the left half of my brain. And over the course of four hours, I watched my all, all the circuitry in my left hemisphere shut down. So after that period of time, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. I essentially became an infant in a woman's body. And, and while that was happening through the eyes of a neuroanatomist, it was actually a fascinating experience, yes. um, even though it, it, was, it ended up being my before and after. Well, I think you said that in your TED talk, didn't you? Like you had the moment where you go, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm having a stroke. Wait, this is so cool. Wow. Like how many neuroanatomists get to study this from the inside? I yeah. mean, yeah. yeah. Wow. So can you walk us through the experience of the stroke and the, imme the immediate aftermath? So on the morning of the stroke, I was extremely fit. I was, uh, I called myself healthy as an ox to a doctor like three weeks right before the stroke happened. It was a rare form of hemorrhage in my brain that I was born with. So I, nobody was expecting this to happen. And I woke up on the morning of the stroke and um, I started with a throbbing pain behind my left eye. And it was so unusual for me to experience any kind of pain that I thought, well, I'll, I'll do my normal routine, which is exercise. So I got up and I closed the blinds because it was the light was hurting my head. And I jumped onto a cardio glider, which back in those days was a full body exercise machine. And um, I literally looked at my hands on this machine and they looked like claws instead of my hands. And so I felt this disconnect from instead of being the one on this machine, having this experience, I was observing myself having this experience and the pain in my head was just getting worse and worse. So, um, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take a shower. I'll feel better once I'm clean. 
And so I'm walking across my living room floor and, and everything in my body was really slowed down. And it was literally as though I was having to talk to the muscles in my legs to move, move, move. And I got to the shower. And as I got into the shower, I literally lost my balance. And um, I, I was leaning up against the shower wall and, and I realized I could not discern between the atoms and molecules that made up me and the atoms and molecules that made up the wall. And so, of course, through the eyes of a neuroanatomist, I'm, I'm analyzing. I mean, this is what I taught at Harvard Medical School is all the circuitry wow. of all of these abilities. And so it's like, okay, you know, perception is blurring. I can no longer distinguish between a this and a that. And I turned the water on and the water hit the tub with this enormous roar. The volume was just explosive. And it, I realized, you know, audition, auditory information is at the brainstem level. I'm in trouble. This is, this is serious. So now my brain is mapping the situation that I'm having and I'm realizing uh, I'm in trouble. I got to get help. I got to get help. So I get out of the shower and I, I dress mechanically. I just, I just do. And then I'm walking around and I'm thinking, um, you know, can I drive? Cause I'm still thinking, well, I'm going to go to work, which is at a, a Harvard medical school and they're going to help me. <laughs> <laughs> right, but you and didn't realize. Did you realize at that point you were having a stroke, or no? Not, you just knew that something was wrong. Well, as I'm asking myself, "Can I drive?" My right well, arm yeah. fell against my body, and then it was paralysis. It was the it was paralysis. Said uh, I'm having a stroke because that's you know now I'm not an MD, so you know people say, "How could you not know you were having a stroke?" It's because I don't hang out with stroke survivors. You know, I'm a PhD. I cut up dead ones. There's a big difference, right? So, so, so my knowledge base was, was not what I needed, but I did know paralysis. And then that was stroke. And then it was like, oh my God, I'm having a stroke. And then it's like, wow, you know, this is so cool. How many, how many neuroanatomists get to study their own brain from the inside out? And, and it's like, okay, but I got to get help. I got to get help. So, uh, so I go through this process and I'm going to encourage your audience to go to the TED talk because the TED talk is 18 minutes of big drama. Um, and, uh, uh, but I did get help clearly. And by the time I got to the hospital, I had all but passed out right as I was approaching uh, Mass General Hospital emergency room. And when I woke up about an hour later, I re I knew I could not walk, talk, read, write or recall any of my life. Everything was shut down and I was literally all but dead. So that was where I found myself when I became conscious again. I mean, isn't that, that's just so hard to even comprehend, <laughs> right? Like is that, that whole, that aftermath experience of like not, not knowing even who you are. Did you, Nothing. did you know? Nothing. Does that mean you, you lost all sense of identity all of yourself? All. All, your 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 name, what you did, who your family were. Oh, everything was gone. The only thing was, that was there was I was conscious. I was in a body that was laying on a gurney in a small room, and it was just atoms and molecules, and I was just atoms and molecules in space, and I felt like a literally a ton of lead 
laying on this bed. I mean, I could I couldn't tell you what position my limbs were. I couldn't tell you I had any limbs. I just felt like a ton of lead, and I thought, what do I do with this? Literally thought, what do I do with this? Because did you still have that voice in your head that sounds like you? No. No, I had an awareness, but I did not have a voice. Yeah. That's pretty significant. Um, yeah. It was a significant moment in time. And and I knew I felt an incredible sense of grief because I had lived. And I was so detached from this reality and when I passed out on in the in the parking lot, literally the parking lot of the emergency room, up to that moment in time, it was slow down consciously, slow down, keep your blood pressure low. Somehow I knew to do that. Don't move, hang on, hang on. And then I kept thinking, what am I hanging on to? I don't know, just hang on right? Hang on, hang on to life, hang on to this connection to this massive collection of cells. And, and in the, right before in the parking lot of the emergency room, I actually felt my spirit surrender and I let go. I let go. I was gone. I was done. It was, it was death. You know, I thought, well, this is it. So when I woke up, I was shocked to discover that I was still alive. I mean, I, cause mm-hmm. I let go and because I let go and I surrendered and yet I'm still stuck in this body that can do nothing. I mean, nothing but pain, just immense pain. And mm-hmm. I, I felt incredible grief that I had survived for about a nanosecond. And then it mm-hmm. was, well, I am here, and I didn't, I, I wasn't gone, and I wasn't going to go. I think the moment left that I would die, because, you know, now they've, they've surrendered, they've, they've, they've saved me, and then it was a new beginning. It was a new beginning, indeed. It was a new beginning. But you say that there was grief there, but there was also an experience of euphoria for you, was there not? Well, yeah. Well, well, the whole, so, so euphoria. So it was, this is how I kind of map it. During the morning of the stroke, I was waffling between being in the left brain capable of attaching to the external world to create what I needed in order to survive, right? The, the steps I needed. But then I would drift off into what I affectionately referred to as La La Land, and I would be absolutely connected to all the atoms and molecules. I'd be expansive and open and big as the universe. Present moments, all I had, blissful euphoria, and then bam, right back into reality of the left hemisphere where I could take more steps to get to where I needed to be. Well, that process took probably an hour to an hour and a half of waffling back and forth. By the time I, I arrived and went unconscious from that moment forward, the left hemisphere was gone. 
And it's like it did what it needed to save me. And then it was said goodbye. And mm-hmm. I lost I lost all those beautiful skill sets that the left hemisphere does. And when I awoke, I was as big as the universe, but I I'm still here. I'm stuck here in this body now. And and that wasn't the plan, right? If you're going to be in this condition, you're not supposed to be here anymore. And I knew, I just knew I was no longer organically capable of the skills that I had had because I had been a scientist and I had watched circuit by circuit by circuit go off the line. And I remember looking over, my boss was there and, and my, uh, my best friend, my colleague was there in this room with me and they're a neuroanatomist. So they had the light switch on and they had images of my brain on the thing. And, and I couldn't, I didn't know any of it and I couldn't, I couldn't really discern much, but I remember looking at that image of my brain and there's this big white spot where a big white spot did not belong. And it did not take a neuroanatomist to say, yeah, it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. And yet there are parts, Jill, and I hear how, how enormously difficult this is and has been for you, but then you also learned so much through the experience and you also have so much to share with other people in terms of how we should approach our lives and live better yes what are, what are some of those lessons <laughs> well I mean you gotta laugh I love that you have a good laugh about this because it's uh, I guess you've to. got to right yeah you yeah, have to you have to yeah 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 to. absolutely have to so you know what I gained in the absence of having a left hemisphere I lost my ego center that says I am Joe Bolte Taylor so I lost my identity I lost, so she would, She died that day, that girl I'd been before. I was 37 at the time. I lost all of her book knowledge. I lost all of her language skills. I had no language. I lost the group of cells in the parietal region that defined the boundaries of where I began and where I end. So in the absence of that, in the absence of the identity, I was literally as big as the universe. And my perception of myself now was that I was an energy ball and I blended in with the energy ball of everything around me. And so every human who came into the space of me, they would speak to me and it sounded like made no sense. Um, And I could detect their, their energetic. And um, I felt like there were two kinds of energies. There were those who, came in with an energy that was compassionate and open and soothing and embracing of me. And I felt like there was an energy of some people who just wanted to come and take something from me. And I had nothing to give. All I had at that level was I was an energy ball and I had nothing to spare. So it, it profoundly influenced me that I could tell the external world had no idea how to communicate with me in this condition. Mm -hmm. They had no idea how to reach in and find me and hold me in this space and help me create a connection between any of the neurons I still had inside of my head. And it was like, okay, um, I'm, this is my job. 
this is my new job. And, um, uh, but you know, my, my mother came back she was in Indiana. I was in Boston. Uh, she came to Boston and she, she did a magnificent job taking responsibility for making decisions in my world. But my mother, bless her soul. She believed nothing new better than my own brain, what it needed in order to recover itself. And so the doctors, she didn't listen to them. Uh, friends, she didn't listen to them. She watched me. And if I needed to go to sleep, which was, you know, 12 hours a day at least, she let me sleep. And then when I was awake for 15 or 20 minutes, she fed me, took me to the bathroom. Um, if I had any energy left over, she put something in my hands and she taught me from scratch. I was now an infant in a woman's wow. body. And she began again as uh, knowing that I was her infant. There's a beautiful photo of you and your mum that you share <laughs> with you two so close and you have this huge scar on your head and you feel the love. You feel yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. The look on my face in that, in that photograph, uh, the look on her face. I mean, we were two humans connected at the soul mm. because that's all I had. Yeah. Yeah. And yet you're here, you're talking. Yes. Couldn't have, done it, re- couldn't have done it without my mother. It took eight years for me to become a hundred percent. Eight years. And we just, I documented everything along the way because everything's a circuit. And so language is a circuit. Numbers, understanding numbers. It was four years before I understood what a one was. So when people would say, Jill, what's one plus one? It's like, what's a one? Right. And people would say, oh, a one, a one, you know, a one, a one, a one is everything. And it's like, well, if a one is everything, how can there be another one? I mean, it made no sense. And for four years, it was before I, I could even, you know, touch on that, those concepts. So, uh, and it was eight years before I felt as though I was a solid again, where I could define the boundaries of where I began and ended. And, and, and in the absence of that ego, in the absence of a world that revolves all about me, 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 more, 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 I was clearly now bathed in this consciousness of being at one with all that is. And if I'm an energy ball at one with all that is, and you're an energy ball at one with all that is, we're nothing but love. And if we're love, we're going to support and nurture and cooperate and collaborate and be one human family because energetically that's what we are until that little group of cells in the left hemisphere says, oh no, I'm separate from you. I'm Jill Bolte-Taylor and this is all me and my stuff and you're separate physically and you have you and all your stuff and now we become a, a me and a you and then we become a we and a they. And mm-hmm. at a cellular that has a level. lot of, and interestingly, because that has a lot of societal implications, of course. Absolutely. Quick pause. If you're a regular listener to the show and you have found value in these episodes, I would be immensely grateful if you pledged your support. Reality is, podcasting is not a free venture. There are many behind-the-scenes costs. 
but with your support, you'll be able to help me fuel the growth of this podcast and keep bringing you bigger and better guests each and every week. And of course, the signature honesty and real talk, which I'm known for. So if you'd like to say thanks and support the show for less than a cup of coffee per week, you can click the link called Patreon in the show notes. Thanks so much in advance, guys. Back to the episode. Let's come to whole brain living. What inspired you to write this book? Well, so um, I did write My Stroke of Insight, the first book. I self-published it in 2006. I wrote that book because my mother said, Jill, you're on the phone all day long. You have no life because everybody's calling you and saying, what did you do in order to recover? And I was very friendly. So I wanted to help everybody who called, right? So I was talking literally eight hours a day to people. So she said, you need to write it down and give it to the world and get off the phone. <laughs> I said, okay. So, so I ended up writing what I was always telling people because I'd been telling all these people all this stuff that I needed them to know to help their people get better. And so that's how my stroke of insight came about. And that was in 06. And then in 08, the TED Talk happened. And when the TED Talk happened, I was exploded into the world. Well, Ted and I together, we, it was the first Ted talk to ever go viral. And, um, and by anyone's measure, then Oprah found out about it. I was chosen as one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential. It was a big year for Joe Bolte Taylor, right? And, and, but it who was a, at that point, by the way, sorry to interject, but did you know who you were at that point? Yeah. Going to what you said about having like losing the identity. Did the identity recover as you were before? No, the woman I was before she had died, she was gone. I would never, uh, I would never try to achieve what that part of me had achieved. Um, because she was, uh, she was very left brain and I was never going to let my left brain dominate again. Mm. I wanted the skill sets of the left brain, but I didn't, I didn't buy into the values of me climbing the Harvard ladder and going back to all of that. That was no longer my goal. My goal was now, how do I take what I have gained in having had this experience and how do I share that now with humanity in order to help us balance our value structure so that we actually love each other better so that we can actually evolve humanity instead of blow ourselves up. <laughs> so so I, I'm not who I was before, even though I walk like her and I talk like her and I'm, I'm back to studying the brain again, but I'm my value structure stems from the collective whole instead of me and mine and what can I get for me. That's a very significant transformation. And I guess to use the title of your book with the stroke of insight, that was probably one of the big insights oh, yeah, that you absolutely. did derive. Oh, yeah. absolutely. It, was, it wasn't It was about me anymore. I was grateful that I was alive. I was grateful that I could bring a perception or a perspective of an experience to the right brain, left brain conversation through the eyes of a neuroscientist and to, to shed... A, a different way of looking at all this book knowledge that all the neuroscientists have. There are very few mm -hmm. neuroscientists who have had this incredible opportunity of shutting off half their brain 
and living in the consciousness of the unconscious. Well, the unconscious is no longer unconscious. It had, it became conscious for me because I didn't have the rational thinking portion of that left thinking tissue saying, you know, this is what's important. All of that is that has no language, has no relevance. It's like, of course it has relevance. But if, if you look at scientists and scientists will say, well, was I conscious? There's even uh, a, a conversation about, about was I viable? I was alive, but was I, did I have any value? Because I didn't have that left thinking brain. And it's like, (laughs) come on, man. You know, how can we wipe out your left thinking tissue so that you can like, like really get to know who you are? You know, there's, there's three quarters of your brain that is, we perceive a society to be a part of the unconscious. And because of this experience, it doesn't have to be unconscious anymore. And that's what brings us to whole brain living. We have the capacity to now to know what is going on inside of our brain both neuroanatomically and the characters that that we have at an anatomical level that we all have. And when we get to know those four parts of who we are, oh my gosh, we get to live a completely conscious life. And and once we do that, we do have free will. Once we do that, we we do get to pick and choose moment by moment who and how we want to be in the world. And if that's not personal freedom, woohoo, I don't know what is. I like that. We have the power to choose moment by moment. Who and how we want to be. Who and how we want to be in the world. Yeah. Moment by moment. Moment by moment. Well, I guess it goes without saying, but we need to break down what these four parts are. Great. So uh, when you think about yourself anatomically, as a human, we have uh, a midbrain, we have brainstem, and the brainstem's level of sophistication we share with reptiles. And it's pretty much on-off switches. I'm hungry, I eat, I'm not hungry anymore, that kind of thing. And then the difference between a reptile and a mammal is the addition of new tissue on top called the limbic tissue, the emotional tissue. And it's bilateral. So we have emotion in the right hemisphere right here, right now, and we have emotion in the left hemisphere. And then humans have thinking tissue on top of the emotional tissue. So we have right thinking tissue and left thinking tissue. So when you look at the skill sets that are carried on inside of each of those four groups of cells, they're very, very different. And so each of us has two emotional groups of cells that do different things and result in two emotional characters that we all have. And then we have two thinking brains that we all have. And um, each of the, the characters is, is I call them characters one, two, three, and four, just for convenience. And I don't label and give names to yours. And I encourage people to name your own four characters because you know them, you live with them. If you don't recognize them, ask your partner or your parents or your children because they'll tell you all about yourself. <laughs> and, and for most of us, because we haven't differentiated these four parts, they're just kind of popping in and out. Oh, in this minute, I'm being my left rational thinking brain. Oh, in this moment, I'm just being playful and curious and, and I'm in my right, right, uh, emotional tissue. Or, or if I'm having a spiritual moment, a connection to something greater than I am, I'm in my right thinking tissue. So, so each of these skill sets, and we know 
what these different groups of cells do, because when you have lesion studies, stroke happens 800,000 a year just in the U.S. I mean, when we look at people's brains and we see what has been wiped out and we know what skill sets they've lost, I mean, we do a pretty good job mapping characteristics onto the cells inside of our head. So, um, so yeah, so we end up with these four characters. You've read the book. Is that true? Yes. Have you, have you labeled your parts? I haven't labeled my parts. I always find it fascinating when people haven't, haven't, uh, haven't done that yet. Okay. So shall we run through them? Yes. For your audience? Okay. Yes. So, so the biggest difference, as I understood it based on my personal experience between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere is the right hemisphere is right here, right now. It's all it is right here, right now. It doesn't have a past. It doesn't have a future. It's really connected to the present moment. And the ego center group of cells, that's over in the other hemisphere. So I don't have that. The group of cells that defines the boundaries of where I begin and where I end, I don't have that. So all I have in the, is the present moment. And in the present moment, I'm a big ball of energy. I'm connected to all the energy all around me. So I feel open and expansive. I'm connected to all that is. I feel this incredible sense of peace because there's peace in the present moment. Now, I can have a lot of fear from the past and a lot of anxiety in the present about the unknown fears of the future. But right here, right now, this is a pretty perfect moment. Even so if the it's right, difficult? What? Even if it's difficult? Oh, well, but what's difficult? What is difficult in the present moment? Right here, right now, what, what is difficult? What's difficult? Well, right see, here, now, right now. So, yeah. But see, now you got to go and you got to think about it, right? Okay, so well, what's difficult? So this happens before you think. Okay, okay. So well, in no, that well, exact moment, well, the before, thinking, the th before the labeling. Before the labeling, because that's all language. That's all language-based. So for you to think or for you to feel something that is uncomfortable about the present moment, you got to go to your left brain in order to have that information. But if you're just right here sharing in the glory of having a conversation with me, right? If you are, allow yourself to just simply be here to look out, and I don't know what you see outside your window, but I see trees, and I see trees, and I, it's just a touch of movement, and it's like a leaf. It's like it's like waving at me. There's like almost, there's, there's this expansiveness for me in the present moment, but I'm not preoccupied now with my pain from my past or my fear of the future or any of the things that I have to do or, oh, my God, what did I say? I shouldn't have said that. You know, all that, that's in my left Doesn't brain. Exist. Right. Doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right? And in the absence of all that is simply peace. Peace is achievable if we can differentiate which portions of our brain are bringing us the information that we're routinizing over at a circuitry level in order to either feel or think things that make us uncomfortable. I mean, I can tell you a million things right in this moment that we could all be freaking out about. I mean, do you want to talk about politics? Do you want to talk about the weather? Do you want to talk about who knows what you want to talk about? But it's not right here, right now. That's not here. So the right hemisphere right here, right now, Emotion, the experience, what does it feel like in this moment? What does it feel like to be in your clothing? 
do you feel your clothing? Think about the weight of them. Think about the texture of them. Think about the scent of them. Think about, uh, do you like them? The colors, you know, have the experience of the present moment. That's right here, right now. What's not right here, right now is that type A personality that's hooked on a clock that's all about language, all about using words, has a to-do list, defines what's right and wrong and good and bad, fixes us into the social norm of the external world. How do I take me and put me in a social norm so that I fit in? Well, that's a great left brain skill. So character one, the left rational thinking brain, knows that one plus one equals two, and it has no emotion about that. It's just simply thinking tissue. The emotional tissue of that left brain also has a past and has a future. It also has an identity called me, the individual. So it's all my pain from the past. It's also my pride or any of my emotions from the past. And it's also my fears or of the great unknown of the future. So the left brain has this linearity across time which is capable of good things that are mechanical because you have this piece and then you fit this piece with that piece and then this piece with that piece. And it's like, you have to put your socks on before you put your shoes on, right? Mm -hmm. Who knows that? I, if I'm just sitting here in my right brain, I have no clue. Now you can teach me to put my socks on and teach me to put my shoes on. And then you can lay them out and say, you know, dress yourself. And it's like, well, I don't know which one goes first because I just don't know which one goes first, right? That's beyond my knowledge base in the present moment. So I have to have linearity of time in right. order to do, do all of these simple tasks. So, so the emotion of character two is all, is all the emotion of my past life. And as it relates to me, the individual, there's also a tiny little group of cells inside of here that is for craving, for addiction. So any of my addiction or my desire of something that isn't here in the present moment is also going to be in that little character two profile. So character three profile then is going to be the emotion of the present moment, which is experiential. What does it feel like to be here? And then it's curious and it's open to all possibility and it's innovative and it colors out of the box because the box is over there in that left hemisphere somewhere. And it, the left hemisphere is defining what is right and wrong and good and bad. And I just want to do something that feels good, right? So I'm just going to paint something new or do something new and I'm going to be creative and I, I, I like other people. So I want to be, I want to do it with you because it's more fun if I get to blend my energy ball with your energy ball. And, and we can also land ourselves in jail because we don't think about consequences of our behavior. So, you know, when, <laughs> when we land ourselves in, oh, it sounds like a good idea to sneak into the neighbor's pool in the middle of the night and go for a swim. And it's like, sounds well, great. it does. It sounds great. Let's go do that. And then the parents come in and say, and what were you thinking? And it was like, well, we thought it sounded like fun. So, uh, so character three can get us into trouble, but it is, it is our music and our, our, um, our artistry, you know, new possibilities. Okay. Um, and then character four is this thinking part of us that is connected to all that is. And it's not all about the right, wrong, good, bad. It simply is this feeling of, of love. It's like, oh my God, I'm alive. 
I'm alive. And I'm not just alive. It's not like I'm just a single-celled organism. I'm 50 trillion molecular geniuses all packed together, differentiated with all these different <laughs> abilities. And if you can look at yourself in a mirror and not be in awe, you're <laughs> missing something beautiful. Because simply because we exist is this amazing miracle. Um, but, but, you know, as a society, we don't really value that much. Uh, absolutely not. I don't know what the statistics are. I think I'd heard something like one in 400 and something trillion chances that we are to be born. And oh, we I forget the, the miracle of our existence in, especially with women and the beauty pressures, standards to look a certain way. I find there's uh, really a lot of women in particular who struggle with self-image. So, yeah. I, you know, the idea yeah. of standing there and saying, yeah, I'm I'm beautiful. This what what, oh. what a marvelous time to be alive. It's oh my goodness. Yeah, well, and that's that character one and two. The character one is the perfectionist, and the character two feels desperately to needs to fit in, and and so you know how do I how do I shape myself so that I fit into that societal norm? And it's like you know, I didn't really buy well into that pre-stroke and post-stroke. I certainly never bought into that. Um, mm. clearly, <laughs> <laughs> clearly, you know, but I'm probably the <laughs> happiest person on the planet or, or one of them anyway, because you I'm just, seem so happy. I'm just good. You know, I'm just good with what is, whatever it is. Oh my God, I'm alive and I'm capable of being miserable. I mean, oh my gosh, I run a circuit that is sadness or, or grief or, or anger or joy or whatever. I'm alive and capable of having these experiences. To me, that's the miracle of life. And, 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 you know, I always say to my friends, Hey, I don't mind if you're miserable as long as you remember to enjoy it because, oh my God, you're capable of being miserable. And then the way the brain works is it's very, it's on these little circuits, cells run in circuits and, and a circuit runs in approximately 90 seconds. So it's like from the time you think a thought, you feel an emotion, the, the emotion has a physiological response, dumps something into your bloodstream, flushes through, flushes out, and then it's over. Well, that was quick. Time yourself the next time you get angry. Just watch. See how long it takes for it to flood through and flush out. And I know everybody's now saying, oh, no, no, no. I can stay angry for a whole lot longer than 90 seconds. But pay attention to what you're doing. You're rethinking the thoughts that are re-stimulating the emotional circuit, re-stimulating the, um, the physiological response. And we can, you know, we can, I can think of someone from 20 years ago who I was mad at and I can get mad about them now. And I'm just rerunning an old loop. Yes. I actually did want to ask you separately about this because... It's very uh, relevant even with the timing in terms of holidays and people getting together with their families and friends. And oftentimes that does invite in yeah. a lot of the old stories, let's say, which resurface yeah. the old patterns and to find a way to reduce emotional reactivity or to find more inner calm. I think that's super important. Right. And to hear what you say that that is 90 seconds, mm -hmm. that is liberating 
in ways. I think in practice, it's really hard. I mean, I I definitely even struggle with this myself because I do exactly what you're saying not to, which is I think the same thought, I think it again, or I'm resisting it in some way. So it keeps the feeling from, yeah, it it makes the feeling last longer. It keeps it going. But 90 seconds, you've done research on this too, haven't you? Uh, Well, try it. Yeah, well, the research that, think about it this way. A neurological loop is a neurological loop. It's a group of cells in communication. It gets triggered, it runs like a reflex, and then it does what it does, and then it terminates. And um, it's just like a patellar reflex. Tap the patellar tendon, and you complete a cycle, and then it you kick, and then it's gone. And so when you look at the neurocircuitry inside of the brain, this is the fundamental way in which neurons communicate. They run in these loops. So, um, yeah, try it. I, actually, for me, it's about 86 seconds. And, you know, you can time it. Time it. Next time you really feel yourself feeling a deep emotion or even a belly laugh. I mean, belly laughs, boy, don't we wish they could go on for five, six, seven, 20 minutes. No, a belly laugh happens and then it's gone. So it doesn't matter what, whether we would define it as a positive or a negative emotion, they just loop themselves. So are you saying for you personally, after your stroke and the insights that you derive from that, that you have since been able to welcome like full acceptance and even experience joy in amongst what we would typically call our negative emotions? Well, I think everything is a positive experience. Um, little character two gets a bad rap because that's the part of us gets emotionally triggered based on our past pain. And little character two is so important because, you know, so many people have said psychoanalysis for 30 years and they're still routinizing this in the same stuff. Right. And that's because the more they run into it and run that circuitry, the stronger that circuitry becomes. And you're just constantly revisiting and what you really want to do is, is step out of that character too and work with the other three parts of your brain. The beauty of the human is that we have these four parts of our brain. And so I'm going to go back to the example of, of holidays. What happens at holidays? It's amazing. All of a sudden, I become the little sister in my family again. I'm a 64-year-old independent woman. I've had quite a life, and yet I still become the little sister. How does that happen, right? And they become the big brothers, and it's like the dynamics with the familial dynamics of revisitation. But I know my character one. I know my professional A-type personality, business person. I know her well. I also know my character three, very playful, very creative, very artistic, very musical, very strong part of who I am. I also know my character four. I know my connection to being as big as the universe, very powerful part of who I am. So when I now go into this familial environment, yes, We may be inclined to go into that character too, but how do we rescue ourselves? We rescue ourselves by knowing our our options. What are my options? My options are my character one, my character three, and my character four. So then if somebody says something to me that would normally or has triggered me in the past emotionally, they're triggering my character too. I don't have to let that happen. I really want to break this down into something practical. So with a story or a a scenario so people can really 
understand the different characters within themselves and understand why it's even useful to be able to think in this way. So do you have an idea of a, a scenario that we could sure. play with there? Well, let's stick with the the holidays because okay. they're so real, right? Yeah. So uh, let's say uh, we're all sitting around, we're all prepping for dinner. And somebody comes in and, you know, every time we get together, it's just like they're poke, poke, poke. We poke the bear. Why are we poking the bear? Or let's say somebody brings up politics and that we're on different sides of the agenda, right? That's a good one. So let's say uh, somebody brings up something and the rest, and, and it's just like, I just can't take it. I just can't take it. You can't, just can't take it anymore. And so I feel myself, I literally feel myself start doing the cringe, right? Little character two, when we get emotionally triggered, I clamp my jaw, the whole constellation of events, physiological events tend to happen. I clamp my jaw, I furrow my brow, uh, I tighten, my shoulders go up, I tighten, constrict my chest. So I don't get deep breath. I'm, I get kind of on the edge of my seat. I'm like ready to bite, right? I mean, I'm just ready to chew. So, um, uh, so I'm feeling myself move into this experience. Now I have, I have options and my options look like this. My character one, um, is a fix it machine. It's all about fixing it, right? It runs the machine. It controls people, places, and things. It's a great management. It's good at being punctual. It's good at everything, all those kinds of things. And so it can come in and say to me, Jill, little Abby, I call mine little Abby, little Abby, and my character one, I call Helen. Helen wheels, she gets it done, right? She, she's the fix it machine. So Helen comes in and says, little Abby, I got you. Is there anything I need to do to help you? Do we need to leave the room? Do we need to make a phone call? Do we need to what, you know, other than you blurting out all your nasty ugly, what can, what can this part of me do to help with the rescue? So character one comes in and says, okay, I got you. Let's walk, let's go into the other room. Let's get dad a drink. Let's do this instead of this engagement. So I actually take responsibility for my own self and I move myself out of the room, right? Character four comes in and says, oh my gosh, it's the holiday. You know, I've been with this family since I was born into it. And these people, you know, <laughs> I really do love them. You know, in spite of themselves, I, I really do. I, I'm grateful that I'm alive. These are the biological family I happen to be born to. Didn't they make my life interesting? Um, and it's like, I'm okay. I'm okay. And I'm glad that I'm here in the presence of them. I brought myself here, so why am I here, right? So a part of me wanted to have like maybe the best possible experience. So I need to bring my character for in for the best possible experience. So the love comes in. And once the love comes in, it's like I look at my mom and I look at that big bird that she always bakes and it, that beautiful skin. I mean, I, I apologize to all of your people who are not carnivores in this conversation. But, <laughs> I, you know, I'm having an experience. Okay, let's talk about the cherry pie. It's just this love. My mother made this cherry pie because she knows I love her cherry pie. And I'm just, there's this gratefulness that comes into my heart. And I can look at my brother who was a really hard relationship going up. But what I have gained because I had that relationship and I 
look at my dad and I look at the gifts I've received because he was so creative and so artistic and now I am too. And, and I get that from my papa and we might all want to kill one another over the dinner table, but I still bring, I have this love inside of my character four. And then my little character three says, okay, let's make this fun, right? Somehow let's play. How can I play with these people in a loving way so that I can help lift the load instead of just chewing into my character too and having a fight and having an argument. So we have all four of these characters inside of ourselves and knowing that three of them are really healthy and one of them is really powerfully in pain. And it's okay to feel that pain, but I don't have to express that pain. I can express knowing that pain, having a gratitude that that's my pain. That's We all have this pain. This mm. is my pain and I have learned and I have grown and I have become who I am because I have looked at that pain and I have, I have just grown. You have to have that pain and pause on the pain in order to learn from it. What did I learn from my brother? What did I learn from that pain? What did I, I learned how to fight for my life. And I learned how to fight for my life and I fought for my life when I needed it because I am a different scenario, but I'm still here today. And I'm not just here today in a vegetative condition locked away in a nursing home. I am full force back again mm -hmm. because yeah. of that pain. Yeah. What a reframe. What a reframe. What a reframe. Isn't that so, yeah. all it is? Isn't that all life is? And, and because we have four different ways of looking at it. So knowing our four different ways gives us the power of whole brain living. We get to bring those parts of ourselves that we don't know so clearly. How mm -hmm. do I, how do I find my lifeline? Well, I need to know that part of me and I can know that part of me and whole brain living. There does seem to be quite a lot of work into the different parts of ourselves. It makes me also think of a psychology style internal family systems. They don't write yep. it in the same way as you, but it's understanding that that we do have different parts and there is often uh, an inner conflict. But if we can open a dialogue as opposed to experiencing ourselves as just one and having a, a, a mono, an internal monologue, let's start like questioning things right. a little bit more. And I've certainly found that that quite useful to gain a yeah. little bit of separation also from negativity and thoughts that feel kind of overwhelming and lead to an array of uncomfortable situations. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Something you recommend is a brain huddle. Yes. What is that? So a brain huddle, if you think about it, you've got these four characters and they're your team. And what do teams do when they work together? They create a huddle. And so the brain huddle is a way of calling in any moment, all four characters online in this moment, have a relationship with them and let them communicate with one another. So any of the characters can call the brain huddle. And I think everyone should practice every character calling the huddle because we really need the huddle when character two is in pain. Because when we're in pain, we tend to run all other kinds of loops very intensely. And, yeah. you know, we, we want to rescue ourselves and we rescue ourselves by having the huddle. So, so it's called the brain huddle, B-R-A-I-N. It's an acronym. B stands for breath. Breath. Everything begins with breath. Breath is in the present moment. So 
I can change the amplitude, I can change the frequency, mm-hmm. but if I focus on my breath, it forces me into the present, the present moment. moment. So be breath. I know you've worked with a lot of people on breath work. And why mm-hmm. is it effective? It's because you're actually consciously alert and working in the present moment. So B, bring your mind to the present moment. Or recognize who called the brain huddle. And I, again, I encourage all four of your characters to practice calling the huddle. And then A stands for appreciate, regardless of who called the brain huddle, there's four of us in here all the time. We're your team. We are all four of us. And then I just inquire moment by moment, which one do I want to be? In this moment, I need to be more my character one. I need to use my language. I need to think linearly. I need to be clear. I need to be on your timetable, et cetera. So inquire, which one do I want to be? But my dog is right down here and I really do want to just pet her. But I know if I do, I'm going to mess up the microphone again and then it's going to make a mess <laughs> and that's not going to go well, right? So I'm making a conscious decision to be my character one, <laughs> right? Be appropriate. And then, so I as inquire, which one should I be? Do I want to be? And then N is navigate moment by moment. As soon as I'm not with you anymore, I'm going to pet that dog and make a mess, Right. So, because life is moment by moment by moment, and these four characters are constantly vying for the microphone, and Mm -hmm. we have the ability to actually choose who gets the microphone under which circumstances. And there are some really hard circumstances where it's like, I want to feel my pain, I want to sit and weep, but I need to show up right now as a really powerful character one, or if I come across an emergency on the highway, I need to stop and I need to go and be with that person and just love them because who knows what's going to happen to their life, but I can take responsibility and show up with love for them so that I can help fuel that piece of the power. Mm. I'll take that. Jill, I'm going to move into the final fast few questions. And the first thing I wanted to ask is what is something that you used to believe prior to your stroke that you no longer believe? Judgment was a good thing. I used to, I used to be very judgmental. Um, I mean, I was a neuroscientist climbing the Harvard ladder. Judgment was real right, wrong, good, bad. These were clearly defined things. No, post-stroke, no. It's not my job to judge you. It's my job to judge myself against my own ruler and model who I want to be in the world. That's a big change. Big change. Yeah. Second, for people who perhaps are caught in judgment, or feeling that they have to climb a certain ladder to be successful are very much in their left brain, constantly rehashing the past or projecting a future and forget to have those moments of joy and peace in the present moment. What would you say to them? I'd ask, do you want more joy? If you, if you want more joy, there's no perfectionism enjoy you know there's there there is this and that there are things that compete against one another look at the successes you know character ones they thrived on the on the success but a success doesn't last very long you know there's the next rung on the ladder to achieve there's this constant stress driven you know 
not, and I am in no way saying anything negative about the left hemisphere. I would not be here having a communication with you today if I didn't have those skills. But who I am is more than just who is in this body labeled Joe Bolte Taylor. I am a part of humanity and I want to be all of me. I don't want to be just a part of me. And, and, you know, helping people look at their relationships, their divorces, their relationships with their children, the separation instead of the, the, the bringing together. I, I think it's important that we assess our lives and that I think it's important to know we have choices. We have choices mm. and, and we can explore and live different lives if we're willing. But, you know, to me, I always end my, my emails with Einstein in order to become what I will be. I must be willing to give up what I am. That's a great quote. It's a great quote because it's true. I can't keep being this driving character one that is just more, 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 and have and stem from the value of my love of humanity because it's kind of like I can I can be this here and that there, but who am I really? There's a beautiful book for anybody interested in science and the brain. It's called The Master and His Emissary. And it's about the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. And the idea is it's by Dr. Ian McGilchrist. He's a British psychiatrist, is that the master is the right hemisphere consciousness, which is the collective whole of the universe. And then the emissary is in service too, so that the left brain is designed to be in service to the greater good of the whole. And I can do that as an individual, but it's not all about me, me, me. As soon as I go me, 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 and I disconnect from the bigger picture, then I've made this, this grand separation and there's no meaning, you know, there's no meaning and purpose and meaning in life as living beings is about how do I serve? How do I bring the best of me to others and to to aid in everyone's growth. So so that was a big answer. Yeah, it makes me also think of another quote by Einstein. Oh, I think it's Einstein. He said it's something like, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. Absolutely. And when we live life like that, there's meaning to our lives. And I want meaning in my life. I'm one of those people who wake up and say, why am I here? Because I almost wasn't. Why am I here? What can I do? How can I use me to bring more peace to the bigger picture of humanity? And that might mean I'm going to go to my garage and I'm going to carve stone because I love to carve stone. And what I'm bringing, the energy I'm bringing to the world is this love and this passion for the creative spirit of carving stone. And that's going to land on you somewhere, wherever you are in the world. Is it? Yeah, it is. Because <laughs> we're just energy. If yeah. I'm just an energy ball and you're just an energy ball and I'm being consciously putting love and, and joy and satisfaction uh, and goodness and, and connection into the world, then that's what I'm contributing to the world. What are you contributing to the world? Yeah. Is that a real question? <laughs> sure. What am I contributing yeah. I, well, you know, even what I'm trying to contribute, even through this podcast is 
sharing stories of often trauma to triumph, of difficulties to breakthroughs, and to recognize that we're not alone in our difficulties. We are collective and we should embrace more vulnerability, more authenticity, more humanity. And that's the energy that I seek to bring. Beautiful. And those are all right brain values. And and yet you, you also have a very strong left brain to be able to run the kind of podcast that you're running and interacting with the kinds of guests that you have and what you're bringing collectively to the world. So that's why I said th- yes to you. And I say thank you to you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I think I want to finish there, Jill. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been a joy. Sharing your thank work. You. Yeah, you're a, yeah, you're very inspirational in what you've been through. And also the fact that you really seek to be, to use that old cliche of like the change that you wish to see in the world. And to go through that hardship and to come through the other end and go, do you know what? I'm going to be of service and I'm going to make a positive contribution. And no matter how big or small that be, knowing that you matter, like every one of us matters. We all matter. Yeah. And we're beautiful. We're alive. We're this magnificent collection of 50 trillion beautiful molecular geniuses, every single one of us. And when we live life like that, Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Bye, Jen.